Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Larry Karaszewski and I have been talking about oh, how a- excited we were to get to have Scott come on the show. Yeah. Uh, I heard that Scott was positively loquacious compared to his usual. Well, also because the two of you, because, you know, I spent all this time with Scott and Larry in the writer's room for OJ, and every morning we'd start the room, and you'd, just before you dive in, I mean, all writer's room do do this, but, like, suddenly something would come up like Sammy Petrillo, and Scott would go to all the writers, like, you don't know who Sammy Petrillo is? Which (laughs) nobody did. And then he was doing 45 great minutes on Sammy Petrillo, like, you know, the whole rise and fall and tragedy. running that picture in 35 millimeter. I've never seen the whole thing. I'm at so the, excited. At the Malton Fest. Yeah. And because we're going to be there. I didn't even know there was a 35 millimeter <laughs> Somebody's left. kept that print. I've never seen the whole thing. Well, I think you've, I think you've gotten a pretty good impression of what it's like. In a theater? <laughs> but I loved, I mean, when you guys went, because Larry called me, he's he like, yeah, they he, were. He listens to the show. Yeah, I love the show. I love the show. <laughs> I get so excited each week when it comes on. Um, but Larry called me and was like, uh, yeah, they got, I forgot what it was. It was like, you know, Joe corrected Scott on who the matte painter was for <laughs> oh, It's God. a mad, 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 mad world. Effects. No, it was Willis O'Brien. Willis yeah. O'Brien, yeah. <laughs> he thought it was Howard Anderson. I also realized today. <laughs> that fool. I thought well, he composited it. What, he does the, <laughs> and Scott was like, oh, what a fucking idiot. I mean, come on. How do you not know the difference? Well, Scott's also great because he um, he uh, sounds like he's disagreeing with you and he's agreeing with you. So yeah. he'll, he'll say that you, you say that person's beautiful. And go, no, she's not beautiful. <laughs> she's gorgeous. You have spent a lot of time in a yeah. writer's room. <laughs> the crazy thing with Scott is I've known him forever. I haven't. That was more words she than he's ever he said. He hasn't heard him say "boo to a goose." Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that was more than I've heard him talk. Uh, those guys are great. When you get them yeah. talking together about movies and you know obscure, off-center people. Oh, yeah. But that's what they've made their careers on. Obscure, off-center people. Like O.J. Simpson? Well, it's funny because when we were pitching O.J., we were like, no, it's not about O.J. It's about all the people right. to the left of stage. Right. Um, but I also, I thought I was safe doing stuff from the 80s. And then I had this moment this morning where I realized, like, oh, no, now I'm going to be talking about all these people that he knew, that you know, oh, that you yeah. with, as opposed to just... Oh, that's okay. We yeah. trash everyone here. <laughs> um, but are we... Uh... Oh, okay. And you met Don? Yes, we met out in the waiting room. Um, and we'll play some. Do we have a waiting room? There was a waiting room. I met the, I met the Punisher out there. The kitchen? No, no, no. Yeah. We had there texting going, shit, oh. we're running late. Oh, the, going, ki- the kitchen is, yes. the, is the waiting room? I guess so. I we've never, we've never, uh, <laughs> never used it before. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The green room. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I love these people who come in prepared. It's amazing. I know. Unlike us. Yeah, I've told the story before. I'll tell you, you know, well, you've heard it. You listen to the show. Yeah. Good. The, the only guy, Douglas, coaching me on all the homework you have to do if you're going to do a show like this. Because you me, have to learn about the people. Yeah, you know, you're 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 ask the questions like, about their careers. I, and this isn't that kind of show. No, we make them do the work. That's the great joy of it. But um, The audience does the work on this show. I actually have some house cleaning, which... Um, okay. Uh, we are Sunday, May 12th. 
I don't have time yet, but we're going to be at, uh, but you should go to this thing anyway. You should buy a ticket and go to Malton Fest. You should be there all day. You should be all there. Yeah, we're going to be at Malton Fest. It's the last day of Malton The Fest. last day of Malton Fest. I think we're going to be shown after Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn uh, Gorilla. It's only fitting. Which I have never seen all the way through, and I'm very excited to see in a theater with people, no matter what Joe Dante says about it. Um, but we're going to be there, and our special guest, do you know who our special guest is, Joe, at Malton Fest? I, I I have an inkling that it might be Leonard Malton. It is Leonard Malton. <laughs> he's doing it's the something. easiest one to get because he's already there. So look, I mean, people are going to go or whatever. They're not. I don't know. Is anybody going to come just for us? You should because I can't tell you what he's doing, but what he's doing is so impressive to me. I I can't imagine that. You mean his subject for this? His subject. Even Leonard will have to work to do this one, All and right. it's going to be painful work. It's going to be grueling work. I'm in awe of him if he can pull this off. If he can even come close to pulling it off, uh, I'm, I'm not I'll fluffing any of this. Yeah, you, know, well, you have no choice. <laughs> um, I also I we did a terrible thing. We had Alex Cox on a while back, and um, I, I did uh, I snubbed these people twice because not only. Uh, we, we talked about um, the uh, memorial celebration for Harlan Ellison, never mentioned that it happened at the American Cinematheque, at the Egyptian Theater. It's one of the greatest places in the world. Um, but I also didn't thank Grant Moninger, who's the guy who got us Alex Cox mm. and is one of the great cineasts and, and one of the folks who runs the Cinematheque and a fan of the show. And we love him and the Cinematheque. Wow, mea culpa. I know. That was on me. <laughs> This is The Movies That Made Me, with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. But our guest here, um, we haven't, we're, we're breaking our cherry on this particular Subject. We've never had one of you people on before. Um, one of you people. He come highly. Uh, Larry Larry Karzuski and uh, Scott Alexander both spoke very highly of this gentleman. He is a producer. Oh no! <laughs> um, and uh, it's all on you, man. Because if this doesn't go well, we're not ever, never having another one on. Uh, but uh, just some of the credits you can toss them out if you. I, I sort of you've heard the show like. We're not here to hype anything. I just sort of go, oh, I did this. I love this. But come on, you you, you start out, you were on Boys Don't Cry, Far From Heaven. These are amazing films. Um, you worked on, you were a producer on World War Z. A uh, little, little movie I've never heard of called Crazy Rich Asians. I guess that was, I don't know, when was that? Have you heard of that film? <laughs> I don't know. Um, you do, uh, you're doing two things um, that I'm very excited about. One is my um, favorite show on TV last year, I, I Am Not Joking, uh, was Pose. Thank you. Absolutely fantastic on FX. And I hear you guys have finally cracked a project that I and I think every other screenwriter in the world has come on and off at some point or other. You're doing Why the Last Man? Yes, we are. As a TV series, which is what it always which should have been. Which is what it always should have been. Of course it should have been. You just had to wait for TV to catch up with that. Exactly. Yeah. No, I'm, I, uh, I love that. Anyway, our guest uh, is Brad Simpson, who is also, and most importantly... Um, certainly more important than, again, this crazy rich Asian thing. I've never, I've never heard of it. Um, he's a fan of the show. 
Big, <laughs> long-time fan, first-time caller. <laughs> Apparently has yeah. lots of leisure time. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, and has come in with notes and everything. So listens to it. You get the gag. I don't have to explain it to you. Um, you want to just, what, what are you here to talk about, Brad? You know, I'm here to, you know, I, I had this this thing, which is sort of like, you know, because I, I love movies. I'm a movie lover. I grew up, movies sort of saved me. I grew up in suburban Little Rock, Arkansas in the 1980s. And I didn't hunt. I didn't play sports. I didn't, you know, I... The only thing I did as an extracurricular activity was tap dancing lessons, which did not make me popular. Um, but my dad loved movies, and he took me to movies. We saw every movie that came through Arkansas the weekend it came out. High, low, it didn't matter. Your Hunter for the Future. We were there. You know, Return of the Jedi. It didn't. It didn't really matter. And he would. We would watch. And every week he would get the TV guide and be so excited to to. I thought he was a genius because he would be like, there's a movie coming on on Friday night and suddenly it would be Blazing Saddles, which CBS crazily played, I think in 1982. Um, and my mom would watch musicals. Yes. Well, I don't think they used the N word in it, which was crazy. Uh, and, yeah. Well, um, it's a different time. <laughs> it is a different time. Um, but I also remember in the early eighties, they were, there was the last re-release of Song of the South, which I saw in the theater on too. TV? So no, in the, in the theaters. Oh, no, no, the theaters. It's, 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 it's funny when you think back about how, uh, how, apparently racially sensitive we were about certain things and then not others. And, yeah. and that, that Disney was able to build their entire ride uh, around Song of the South. Uh, it's a, it's inc- I can't believe I'm forgetting what the name of this thing is. It's very, very famous. It's like one of the most famous rides at Disney. Joe Dante has stumped uh, himself. I know. Well, um, it's not a movie. It's what? No. no, no. That's- <laughs> no. <laughs> well, um, I, I wow. think I'm having a brain fart. I mean, I I've been on it like a hundred times. Well, but I, anyway, I, the point being, somebody will. the point being that that they were still able to conjure up right that movie right without. Uh, in those times without any of the attendant racial problems and animus that that now has yeah. caused them to it's say. Them well, I remember there was a uh, there was a Japanese import laser disc. They're still releasing it around the world, just not here. Well, it's also easy to get to bootlegs of it. But yeah. Um, yeah. and it, and it, they they never took it out of circulation overseas. Right. Where they apparently have a somewhat different view of race. But you can you can't find it now on uh, overseas on uh, you could find it on Amazon. You could buy it on Amazon UK, I think. Really? Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, all right. Someone remember, will correct us. You know, yes, I remember. Right, you know, I'll cut this old piece out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's riveting. The, the song of the South section of the. Um, but you know, I grew up. I grew up loving um, loving movies, and I, um, you know, I was thinking about well, how do you take down? Because I do believe between ten and fifteen is when your taste solidifies. That between those ages, what you're seeing informs everything. You know, whether it's music, movies, everything informs everything you're going to do, everything you're going to be. And I started consuming a ton then because I was lucky enough in Arkansas to suddenly hit this moment of the rise of cable TV and the rise of the video store and the affordable consumer VCR being introduced into the world probably changed my life. It was a lucky time for you. It was a golden age. And um, there were some books that helped me through this period. There were reference books that I had that would help me know what to rent or what to watch. And one of the key texts for me was cult movies by Danny Perry. Danny Perry. I don't have to explain to people what a cult movie is. I'm sure your listeners know. But Danny Perry wrote this exhaustive first book about cult movies where he would summarize the movie, talk about the means of 
uh, distribution and then analyze the film. And it was everything from A Boy and His Dog to His Girl Friday to, of course, Rocky Horror Picture Show. And it became a guide for the movies that I would try to rent and watch. And you would avidly wait for them to come out. And it's actually a book that has had a huge effect. You know, Thomas from Daft Punk in suburban France had the same book. That's how he discovered Phantom of the Paradise, um, which is where they came up with the idea of the masks. Edgar Wright in small yeah. town in England was reading the same book. It's it's a weird unifying mm-hmm. thing. Um, yeah. And as I was watching those cult movies, I didn't realize that I myself was participating in creating a new cult, which is that I was discovering movies on VHS as a teenager and turning those into cult films. Um, and I want to talk about movies that develop cults in the 1980s on VHS. Um, oh. And certainly that kept going on in the 90s. Sure. A sort of cult movies four. He did three books, movies that if Danny Perry were writing today, would make it into the fourth book. Uh, ah, <laughs> interesting. Okay. Is that too complicated? Uh, no, not at all. Topic? Not at all. Um, um, Spl- yeah. Splash Mountain. Splash Mountain. <laughs> Why I couldn't remember this, <laughs> I don't Splash know. Splash Mountain is based on Uncle Remus? You've never yeah. been on Splash Mountain? Um, can I, I don't mean, can You've I take never been to too your time and tell my Disneyland story? Please do. So it's um, uh, will, a friend of mine. This will explain a lot. <laughs> a friend of mine, Terry, uh, worked at the uh, Chicago airport and took his first vacation in many, many years to come out and, and visit uh, uh, me in Los Angeles. Um, he was very excited. He'd never been out here. And he flew out, and it was a. He was getting in in the evening, and um, the the day he arrived, or the day he was, if he got on the plane, this was already starting. By the time he arrived, his was the last airplane allowed to fly into L.A. because the L.A. riots were happening. And as he flew over the city at night, he saw Los Angeles on fire. And again, you're on a long flight, and you're not, you don't have the internet back then, so it wasn't quite clear what was happening. Um, went off to pick him up that night, took him back. Uh, to my apartment. I lived in the South Bay at that time. We got up the next morning. L.A. had gone completely insane. We had plans to go to Disneyland. We talked about it for a few minutes. I didn't think people in the South Bay would be losing their minds, but they were. We, we couldn't do anything down there. Plus, Terry's black, and everywhere we went, they would look at him funny. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and we were like, well, let's just do Disneyland. So we went to Disneyland during the L.A. riots. And the great thing about going to Disneyland when there's a catastrophe going on is nobody else is there. (laughs) (laughs) So we got to do every ride we wanted as much as we wanted. I remember going down the Matterhorn. We'd just come down and the guy would be like, you want to go again? we go, go again. they go again. So we just did the rides that were awesome. You didn't do Splash Mountain. You didn't do Splash Mountain, clearly. You get wet in Splash Mountain. It's because because it's soaked. I don't like the, yeah. On a racially charged day, it probably isn't the best thing. So your message, though, is- Yeah, good point. (laughs) You know, best time to visit Disneyland, things like 9-11, the LA riots. Honestly, a couple of hours into 9-11, one of the things that occurred to me. (laughs) I should go to Disneyland. (laughs) Because I hate crowds. Um, but uh, uh, so anyway, he went to Knott's Berry Farm instead. <laughs> but I have, I have not been to Disneyland since. But, but uh, so well, probably... when you go, you have to bring a raincoat and you can go on Splash Mountain. I, I, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> sure. Anyway, Brad, thank you for coming. We're out of time. Um, <laughs> so you've created your own. This is awesome. Fantastic. VHS. Okay. And, and certainly, like, you know, there are movies that develop cults on VHS throughout the 90s. You know, Big Lebowski is an example. You know, I even experienced that with my staff where there'll be some movie that they're like, they think it was a huge hit and they don't understand. Well, that's that the it, great thing about VHS is that, is that people think that all the movies that they like were big hits because they like them. 
Exactly. And 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 luckily for for the majority of movies that are popular on on VHS uh, and were not successful theatrically, nobody really remembers that. Which is good for the for those of us who made those movies. <laughs> when when I was at Killer Films, we made a movie called Hebbing and the Angry Inch, and now that's a huge brand, but it did not do well right. at the box office. And I told somebody who worked with me that it it w- did wasn't a success as a film, and they were like, "What are you talking about?" I grew up watching that movie. Uh, but you know, maybe I think in today's world, it, it, the, the knowledge that something was or wasn't a success in the box office is now so irrelevant to yes. people. Yeah. They really don't care. I mean, so what if nobody went to see it then? I'm seeing it now, and I love it. Well, so does it survive? Right? Do yeah. people keep watching? Yeah. Are we still talking about it? You know. And we have, I, you know, I've, I've had to narrow down because there are there are several Joe Dante films that fall into that. <laughs> into that <laughs> Almost category. all of them. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but so I've just kept mine to the '80s, which is when I was, okay. you know, between 10 and 15. These are movies that had a huge effect on me, and that I know have cults around them. And I'm going to start out with Over the Edge. Welcome to New Granada where people come to escape city life. It has safe streets, clean air, good schools. It's a perfectly planned community. But something strange is happening. Something that wasn't part of the plan. Seems to me like you all were in such a hopped up hurry to get out of the city that you turn your kids into exactly what you're trying to get away from. Something that could drive this town over the edge by my friend Tim Hunter, yeah. um, and then also Charlie Haas. Charlie you Haas, right? Too. Um, you know, Over the Edge is uh, was actually I think it was made in seventy eight or seventy nine, but wasn't didn't really get a release until eighty one. It was Kurt Cobain's favorite movie. Um, it uh, influenced David Gordon Green heavily. Um, other filmmakers I know because they all have the same experience that I did, which is that you're a bored suburban teenager and. On cable comes this movie about a bunch of bored suburban teenagers who tear their town apart. Um, you know, Jonathan Kaplan, who directed it, had I think he would he'd been doing Corman films before. He'd done White Line Fever, which is a trucker movie sure. that I love, which is part of the it's hard to remember back that in the nineteen seventies it was the golden age of big rig trucker it was. movies. Um and it's about a bunch of kids in a town called New Granada, um, which is a planned exurb that's growing. And they all hang out at this rec center. They're all played by 15 and 16 year olds, real kids. They have great shaggy haircuts. The young Matt Dillon is yeah, in his Matt first Dillon, role. Yeah. Uh, they, is that his very first Second role. role. Second role. What was, was his first? Uh, a picture, a Disney picture uh, called Tim. That's right. That's right. Um, his second role. And uh, they listen to Cheap Trick. They hang out. Um, they're committing small acts of vandalism because they have nothing else to do. Um, and the town cops are roughing them up. And finally, one of the kids, of course, a gun appears and one of the kids get killed and the movie goes bananas. Um, and it is a movie that is so punk rock to its core. Yeah. It is, you know, and it's got this, you know, well before Steven Spielberg did it, no offense. It has great BMX biker scenes of kids just riding around a suburban wasteland that's being planned. Um, and uh, I saw it and I thought this is a movie that speaks to me so intensely as a 12 year old. And it was a, it was a movie that just got, it was supposed to be the first Orion classics or just first Orion release. And I think in the test markets, it didn't do well. Well, what's interesting is that I, I saw the rough cut of that picture and? because we, we, we tend to show our friends the rough cuts because <laughs> they'll tell us the truth. We hope. Uh, and the, the difference between the rough cut and the movie as released is that there was a lot more material with the parents. Uh, that 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 nobody that, cares. Nobody, nobody, cares. Nobody, nobody, nobody cares. Nobody cared about. And so when they cut that stuff out, 
uh, and and focus the picture on on the kids. That's one of the reasons it it it, it just hit. Well, it's funny because the parents in the movie are very heightened and the kids are super naturalistic. I mean, tonally, it's such a weird movie. It's hard to describe it. It begins with this crawl talking about how every year across America, there are these massive acts of vandalism that happen at schools, almost like a PSA. And later, there's a parody of a PSA in the movie. Um, And at times, it's incredibly realistic. And at times, it's like a heightened B movie, um, which is that hard to pin down tone is what makes it great but the parents are very operatic Mm -hmm. in the movie um but i don't you know it it got completely buried i believe that it got completely buried pretty much jonathan had a couple of pictures that were buried i feel like it was one of those movies that siskel and ebert give it a big push in the early days because they were used to help when they yeah in the very early days of of siskel and ebert yeah you'd turn on pbs and these guys would be raving about some movie you never heard of and i would make a point of seeking it out and i feel like that's how i saw over the edge i think well and that's also in addition to, to books like these like people don't there was you know there aren't this sort of unifying cultural critics but yeah. you know Cisco and Eber, i had the same thing i would watch them and i learned about foreign films through them i mean there were movies that they absolutely i mean roger ebert absolutely hated david lynch movies and would just right. trash every david lynch right. movie that came out <laughs> and they had a war against slasher picks right. and there was oh yeah i remember that uh, yeah, that was the howling fell into that one. Oh, really? Well, they they they, they had heard that it was really gruesome. The Grumman's was the same thing. They heard, they they read a story in the paper that said the picture was really gruesome, and they would they they were sort of on a tear. It was one of their, you know, one of the things that they used as an avatar. It was like yeah. you know we don't like these kind of movies and they shouldn't make them. And every and it was they sort of drummed up a lot of bad will about that particular genre. But they were. But when the picture would come out and, and it would be pretty good, they would they would like it and they would say, "Oh, this actually is okay." You in know? the '90s, when I was at Killer Films, with our indie movies, they could make an indie film. I mean, it literally was this: if if you got a good review from them and you could put the two thumbs up on your poster, oh, it was a huge. It was a huge sales uh, yeah. thing. And and but I think one of the things that a lot of filmmakers didn't like was that they they insisted on this dog of the week yeah. idea. Yeah. That you know, one of the new movies coming out this week is going to be trashed. It by had to get guys. two big thumbs down, right? And you know, so you're a publicist, and you know, you want to want to sell your movie, and now Siskel and Ebert have just given it two thumbs down and made it the dog of the week. Well, did Gremlins get? Was it all? Was it like you know? Would it be ninety eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes? I mean, that was my experience as a kid. That Gremlins. I mean, well, Gremlins was perfect for me because it was then. the. It, it that controversy was aimed right at me. The sort of PG PG thirteen controversy. Well, that was the big controversy. Yeah, that and Indiana Jones was. Uh, they, these pictures were just too violent for children. Yeah. You know, and of course, children went. Eh. <laughs> Not that. It was exactly yeah, what I wanted. Yeah, yeah. Saying way more than they, yeah. they had such yeah, little faith them. in children. I mean, the idea that somebody was going to put their little sister in a microwave oven was just like people don't do that. <laughs> you know, oh, it's a terrible thing to say. But I just remember what was that Disney film where the kid lay down in traffic. Oh, program. the one that they had to cut. And they had to cut the scene. They had a scene and where kids remember, were lying. This and, is uh, terrible. I'm going, I don't know how to tell the story without making it. But the, and they had the mother of the kid who had done that. And she said, my kid wasn't stupid. He would not have done that if he hadn't seen it in the movie. Well, it's funny. As, Which as, makes him stupid. I, I, it's, <laughs> it's like people are, are killing each other because of heavy metal. With all yeah. that panic in the, in well, the when, 80s. Like, when they show the kids the, bur- the purge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We, I, I have to say that as a producer now, one of the things that's sad is like the eighties, one of the alternate things I could have done was the eighties was a scary place for kids because between gremlins and the dark crystal and time bandits and a lot of these movies with as a kid, you got these really dark, complicated children's movies or the bad news bears where they're swearing Mm and you just, you can't do that. That all got got homogenized in the next 10 years. Yeah. 
I mean, and, you know, these sort of happy light movies like Hunger Games for the kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do, um, you know, Over the Edge has the kids are, you know, one of the kids takes acid and, yeah. you know, it, he thinks he's taking speed. But then he in the middle of the PSA they're watching at school about vandalism, he realizes he's taking acid and has this horrible trip. Um, but I would encourage everybody out there to watch oh, Over the Edge. Phenomenal. You know, suddenly, I mean, am I, the interesting thing about it is it's not a movie about teenagers that is overtly made for teenagers is is the thing. I mean, that's that's why it's so interesting and so good and, and uh, you know, why Nina, it spoke to teenagers. Well, no, and, and uh, Nia Jacobson, <laughs> my partner, has this thing. She's like, you know, when you're making a movie f for people, for kids, for teenagers, for whatever, make it for yourself. Yeah. Well, I think that's true for every movie. Yeah. It's always the key to it, and um, but you look at you look at something like Days and Confused. You look at those things, and and Over the Edge. That would be my number one, and that was more of a cable phenomenon, and and certainly like at that moment when cable was moving across the country, you know, things like USA, Up All Night, and mm -hmm. Night Flight is how I started to be able to watch movies, and you would have things like um, you know HBO, you know, just played a limited number of movies every month, right. and so you would I, you were stuck at home in Arkansas the way I was, you would watch whatever movie it was. Over and over, there's one week. The Beastmaster. The Beastmaster is. <laughs> it's I on all the time. <laughs> and that would, I didn't put it on this list, but it developed a cult through yeah. through cable. Um, there's movies that nobody's ever heard of, like Misunderstood, starring Gene Hackman. That I think I was home one week from school, sick, and HBO was playing it. So I watched it maybe ten times, and I can recite lines from it. And I don't want to have that in my head. Um, I, don't, I just remember a poster. What it was no, like some that, generic Henry, Henry Thomas. Henry Thomas, yeah, and then the kid from uh, Kramer versus Kramer. I yeah. think was in uh, it too. Okay. So, but uh, nobody should go out and rent that movie. That's the one um, thing is I missed that because Philadelphia was, I think, the last major city to get cable. So I did not have that growing up with that stuff. We were we had to rely on regular TV and then finally VHS. So all those movies that like cable kids my age tap into, I'm going. Eh. I, I saw the Beastmaster once in a the theater. <laughs> you know, um, the, the the thing that happened is that the 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 V the VCR became affordable. Yeah, it got introduced. Yeah, suddenly and before blockbusters, it was the VHSs that weren't exp that weren't affordable because they the, were like a hundred bucks for a VHS. Yes. And then you had to rent them for. You'd rent $8. them for like three bucks or whatever. Yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I would we had some them. rich yeah, friends no. who own like four VHSs yeah. and it costs like five. They own like The Godfather and they would have a party where all the parents would get together and watch The Godfather. <laughs> but um, 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 they owned a, a waterbed store locally. Um, uh, <laughs> always good for watching. The it's always, you know, well, they were just sort of cutting edge. Um, but um, at the, before Blockbuster, you had mom and pop video stores, which is what I grew up on. So I'm not a blockbuster kid. I'm a mom and pop video store kid. Good, it was some good. family who opened a small business and they would sort of, it was unclear how they would curate what they would do. And you'd have coming attractions and you'd sit there with a book like cult movies and hope some of these movies came on VHS oh, yeah, so you could rent yeah. them. But really the way you rented things was based on the cover art on the VHSs. And, you know, Edgar Wright and I've actually talked about this a lot. You would look at things and if some places they wouldn't let you rent them if you were 12 or 11 the way I was and you'd look at some of these things that had amazing cover art and imagine what the movie was and be desperate to rent it and I mean I, there are two of them that I was desperate to rent who are, who are not on my movies that made me list but had great covers and I couldn't wait and finally there was a video store locally that would rent anything to kids it didn't you know they rent R-rated movies they wouldn't rent X's but um, and those were Forbidden World and Galaxy of Terror oh. <laughs> prepare yourself for the ultimate battle Galaxy of Terror.
stranded astronauts Edward Albert and Aaron Moran trapped in a living maze of terror on a world spawned by their darkest nightmares. It's been waiting a billion years to scare you to death. Galaxy of Terror. Neither of which lived up to the promise oh, of their no, posters. No, no, um, I'm, I'm, I disagree, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I, I saw both of those, God help me, in a movie theater, the Goldman Theater in Philadelphia. Um, Galaxy of Terror has got, uh, do you know this about the film? I actually, I think I talked about it in my commentary. Uh, the first thing, the first scene James Cameron has ever directed. Which is which scene in the movie? Which know? scene do you want it to be? <laughs> I, don't even, I can't remember which movie, Forbidden World, and which one uh, Galaxy of Terror. Uh, which one has Ed Asner? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, is Ed Asner in the other uh, one? Not Ed Asner. Um, uh, Raymond Land. Yeah. Galaxy of Terror. Okay. Uh, no, yeah, Ray, Raymond Land is not in Galaxy of Terror. Yeah, yeah. Not Raymond Land. Uh, Ray Walston. <laughs> yeah. There is a difference. <laughs> Raymond Land shows up later in one of my movies. Oh, Just, right you can try to no, guess there, which one it is. Galaxy of Terror I saw in theaters. And um, uh, one of my the, the second job I worked in out here, Eddie Albert Jr. was the star of this this terrible low budget film, and he had never seen it. He's the star of Galaxy of Terror, and I gave him Eddie Albert my Jr. VHS, that's what I was talking about. Yes, and and he never gave it back. Um, well, maybe he liked it, but now I have it on Blu-ray. Oh. But there is a scene they go to a planet in which uh, basically it's what Sid Haig, Aaron Moran. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's insane how well I know this. <laughs> And um, the planet, it's an alien knockoff. Uh, and, and the planet takes your greatest fear and turns it against you and kills you. There is a huge-breasted blonde nymphomaniac. I apologize. A huge-breasted blonde nymphomaniac whose greatest fear is bugs. And she is ravished to death, let's say, by a giant bug. That is the first thing that Jim Cameron ever directed in a motion picture. I I remember that scene. <laughs> of course, it had you a do. deep psychic injury on yes, me. Yes, of course, because it did. I thought I was just getting a movie that had the both video boxes for the people in the viewing audiences had these amazing creatures that were drawn like the cover oh, of Heavy Metal magazine, attacking even- women in scantily clad dresses and that wasn't what it delivered. Instead, you got these like B movie effects and also. Yep. Um, Yes, a rape. Yeah, giant giant bug raping a woman. Yes, death. yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, that was part of the thing. You you rent things because you know, as as a teenage boy, you were hoping that there was naked breasts in them because this was before you porn, before all these other things. Um, and um, but it's funny because I was starting to acquire t- taste as I watched these things, um, as I watched different movies, and and one of the movies that. I initially loved and then realized maybe wasn't a good movie after loving was a movie that developed a huge cult on video. And that is Tony Scott's The Hunger. Sarah Roberts is in jeopardy. Hey, lady. How about it? Stay with her. Help her. For she has begun to feel the awful horror of The Hunger. John Blaylock. The Hunger has given him everlasting life until now. Pray for him. Miriam Blaylock. She feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting, and soon she will turn into something that you will never be able to forget. No matter how hard and how long you try, fear her. Um, you know, The Hunger for is a vampire movie with David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve um, and Susan Sarandon. And it um, opens with 
what I think is still an incredible opening sequence. They're at a nightclub. Bauhaus is there somehow performing Bella Lugosi's oh, Dead. Um, David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve pick up Anne Magnuson and some other guy. They bring them back to their estate in the Hamptons. They both have these silver onk necklaces on and um, they have sex with them and they open the onks and kill them and drink their blood and they're revealed to be vampires. Um, and the movie has, you know, has a lesbian sex scene between Susan Sarandon and Catherine Deneuve. Um, it has, you know, I think Lockmay is playing while they have that scene in flowing curtains. It has a lot of the Tony Scott stuff. And I saw this movie, somebody showed this me this movie when I was 13 or 14. And I thought, wow. I thought, I, this is an art movie and yeah. I love an art movie. <laughs> um, and I mistook it for, and my friends, we all mistook it for, and, and we were also watching other, there was this thing in France called the Cinema de Luc around that time, which was Luc Besson films. There was a film called Subway right. and uh, a movie called Diva, which also did really yeah. well on VHS. And um, this movie had a lot in common with that and had a lot of all the hallmarks of Tony Scott stuff. Um, and of course, you know, this is when you're, you're passing a movie like that around the way you're also passing the book Interview the Vampire around or Zodiac to your friends saying, are you part of this club? And at some point, as I got a little older, when I was 15 or 16, and I was becoming more snobby and having taste, I realized that maybe this wasn't a perfect movie. Um, <laughs> and and Putting it mild. there was a friend of ours who was a sort of like punk rock kid who carried a switchblade around with him, and he, The Hunger was his favorite movie. And I went up to him uh -huh. and said, uh, do you know what the director of The Hunger just directed? He just directed Beverly Hills Cop 2. And he threw me to the ground, took a switchblade, put it my knife to my neck and said, if you say that again, I'll kill you. <laughs> um, now, of course, I've come back around to really appreciate The Hunger, which had a huge hit and which people referenced cinematically and Ryan Murphy's referenced it on American Horror Story. Um, and um, but it did not do well at the box office, um, but ma massed a huge following on VHS. And if I was double featuring it, I'd probably put near dark Catherine Bigelow's vampire movie, which also got a huge following on VHS on that bill. And I would argue vastly superior. Yes. Yes. Even uh, without the um, obvious trappings. The, the next movie that I will uh, do is a film called Night of the Comet. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be one of the last people on Earth? We're talking ghost town! Who would you see? There's nobody. I mean, there's nobody. Ah! What would you do Hey, I'm sorry if the end of the world makes me a little nervous. Where would you go? The stars are up ahead! Well, get ready to find out, because the comet is coming into your orbit. Well, it was, I, I think the, the concept was, what if uh, the human race got destroyed and two valley girls survived? Um, it's uh, set in Los Angeles, a comet comes through, and it turns almost everybody to red dust, except for this woman who works in a, a movie theater, which is actually the El Ray and her Valley girl friend and the people that hasn't turned, it turns into sort of zombie vampires, um, all of the Omega man and, and starring, um, I love Catherine her. Mary Stewart, Catherine Mary Stewart, yeah. who has a Linda Hamilton look in it. And also Kelly Maroney, who is the star of another cult movie called chopping mall. Right. Um, chopping mall is now a cult movie. Chopping mall. Well, <laughs> It, I would argue it had a cult in the 80s maybe, on maybe video. Maybe the title, Killbots. <laughs> uh, uh, Chopping Mall is a movie where a bunch of teenagers get stuck in a mall and there's a robocop that's supposed to be defending the mall with scissor blades and it kills them all. Um, uh, 
uh, Mary, how do you pronounce her name? Mary uh, Warnoff. 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 Is in Dick Both Bones movies. Yeah. Um, but uh, Night of the Comet is much superior to Chopping Doll. Night of the Comet is, you know, genre bending. It's sci-fi, but it's also humorous. Um, you know, they, you know, a lot of the movies that I love somehow get set in movie theaters and Catherine Mary Stewart survives because her, um, her boyfriend, who's the projectionist, uh, is, uh, has to wait overnight. They have to miss the comet because a, f- a friend is coming up to pick up a mint print of it came from outer space. Um, and somehow the screening room protects them. And when they open the door and there's all this red dust outside, there's a red dust poster <laughs> sitting there. Um, and it's it's a very, very fun, funny movie. Um, I, have, I have not seen it since um, since the VHS days. I, does it hold up? Have you seen it? It holds up. I've seen it recently. Because I've got the Blu-ray and I'm afraid to open oh, it. Oh, no, it's totally. I don't it's, want it to. It's fun. Watch it with somebody fantastic. else. It has oh, one yeah. of the greatest. I mean, first of all, they do the thing where they they shoot downtown LA on a weekend, which I think you used to be able to do because it's just deserted like the Omega man. Yeah. And so you just got these wide open streets. Um, uh, it has this incredible last line, which is, um, the, uh, you know, one of the Valley girls says the burden of civilization is on us. And somebody goes bitching, isn't it? And, um, (laughs) And it's just, it's aware of itself. It's funny. It's fun. Um, and, um, it, it is exactly the sort of thing that was made for, I think it did okay theatrically, but it was made for like repeat viewings with your friend over and over and over again on VHS. And it was huge on VHS after having a small run theatrically. Do you those plastic boxes, the, 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 the sort of fake leather? Snapper cases? The yes. snapper cases. When I think of that movie, I think of those. I know I've like, I've, I've rented it and you'd have to pop them open. Yeah. No, it was a good, yes, if you're having a sleepover, it was a good rental if you were 14 or 15 yep. Yep. to watch with people. Um, Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And um, I'll hit my next one, uh, which is a movie called Out of the Blue. From Out of the Blue comes the most controversial movie of the year. Dennis Hopper, the man who defined the 60s with Easy Rider, now takes on the 80s. Out of the Blue. That's how young she is. And she wants to grow up so fast. Why do you make things so difficult for yourself? It's my life. I can do what I want with it. Better to burn out. What does punk rock mean to you? What are you here for? Money? Fame? What is it? Riches? Linda Mance, um, which barely got a theatrical release. Um, Dennis Hopper um, 
after directing the last movie, which almost was his last movie, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and had been in exile, had had come back and had gotten sober-ish and had just done Apocalypse Now and had been cast in this movie that was starring Ray Milland, to bring it back, that was being shot in Canada. Loved him on My Favorite Martian. Um, and also in um, sure Forbidden World. You sure it wasn't Raymond Burr? <laughs> Is it Raymond Burr? I think it's Raymond Burr. It might be Raymond oh, I Burr. Kidding. No, it's, I think it's, oh. it's Raymond Burr. It's Raymond Burr. Is Raymond Burr Canadian? Yes. Then it's Raymond Burr. Raymond Burr's in Out of the Blue? Ray, well, he's barely he's in it now. A psychiatrist. Originally, the movie was going to be about a girl who killed her father and about this psychiatrist who helped pull her to sanity. Um, but eight days in, the footage was for the first time direct was a disaster. And Dennis Hopper said he would step in and he rewrote the movie over the weekend and made it into this punk rock incest deeply dark and depressing movie where Raymond Land or Raymond Burr ended up with only two scenes and they had to keep him in because of the Canadian tax credit. Mm. Um, the, uh, but this movie, you know, uh, Harmony Corinne was very influenced by it. It's Chloe Sevigny's favorite movie. Um, you know, uh, Linda Chloe Sevigny's favorite yeah. movie. Uh, I think she owns the jacket. There's a blue jean jacket from it. This is Elvis. I think wow. she owns that jacket. It has a horrific opening scene, which is there's a school bus in the middle of the road that's stalled. There's a whole bunch of kids in Halloween costumes in it. And Dennis Hopper and Linda Mance are in a tractor trailer truck driving down. He's drunk. He's kissing her inappropriately. He doesn't see the bus and he rips through it and kills all the kids. Um, and then you cut to six years later, he's been in prison. Um, and it's it's really about this teenage girl. It's sort of more in the over edge over the edge um, world where it's a teenage girl who is um, obsessed with Johnny Rotten. The song um, out of the blue is constantly playing by Neil Young. The sort of it's better to burn out than to fade away. And she's anti-authoritarian. But what she really wants is an adult to take care of her and no adults take character and take care of her. It's a shot in Vancouver. Um, it has a, a sort of ridiculous ending, but it competed for the Palme d'Or can nothing happened with it and it didn't get a release and then on vhs again it was passed around mm. and around and around second life second life um and it's i think they, they've they've shown a 35 millimeter print of it occasionally but i don't know if it's available on vh on, on uh, dvd or streaming at all um so uh the other movie i'll do is michael mann's manhunter Intruder entered through kitchen sliding door. Nationwide victims. Yeah, this is Will Graham of the FBI. One killer. This is what the subject's teeth look like. Which version? Yeah. <laughs> well, we should do the we should do the original version because it was before uh before people could start messing with their movies oh, god yeah i doesn't that drive you nuts i i we, i think we've talked about this i have every freaking iteration of that movie i love it so very much and there there's just 
each each one of them. You know, every now and then I go, I'm going to whittle them down. But every one of them has one scene that I love that isn't in any of the other. Yeah. Well, I think there was some there was some filmmaker who had a quote that was like, "No movie is finished; it's simply abandoned." Well, I think right. that's a, that's actually true. But for the mo- most part, we don't get to go back as much as we might yeah. want to, uh, and and fix things that now either don't look PC after ten years or yeah. didn't get. We didn't have the money to do it right, or you know, I mean, most people just don't get to do that. Yeah. And, and I guess you know you have to give props to filmmakers who can become successful enough to talk somebody into saying let's spend some money on fixing my yeah. movie and we could sell times, it again as a different movie how yeah. many times has he cut that film i'm not i mean there there are well new, he did that with last of the mohicans too did not that many cuts well, i think there's at least three three chances yeah. and heat i mean michael mann's probably one of my favorite directors and i think that he has had as much influence as any filmmaker of the last 25 years. I don't think he totally gets the credit he's due. If you look at the way the movies look, if you look at things like CSI, if you think about MTV and you mm-hmm. think about Miami Vice, if you think about David Fincher, um, you know, he created a style and a look and an attitude in the 1980s and the way that he uses pop music and lines and, and everything that, um, you know, I think some people made fun of it at the time, but it really has lasted. Well, my, my, the my, films my, feel my contemporary. Vice they did, and then and then Manhunter. Well, that's because it became were, a but, style. Yeah, uh, but he hasn't gone back to recut the keep. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I would love to see that again to see if it's quite as bad as I remember. But my God, I mean, you know, I remember I saw Thief in theaters the week it came out, just based on the reviews and James Caan and the genre and everything. And I, you, you knew two minutes into that movie, you were in the presence of you know uh, a cinematic voice you had not heard before. What? He did he did a movie called Jericho Mile in the yeah, 1970s TV for TV. Yeah. And you can see a lot of what he, I always think with a lot of filmmakers, if you look at their first movie, you can see a lot of what they're going to do mm-hmm. in it. And he shot it in San Quentin prison. Yeah. He used it, it opens with Sympathy for the Devil playing is using rock and roll music over these um, beautiful camera moves. He's got real life inmates playing themselves. Yeah, He's got the, the on the wall. He has the images that show up again in in, in heat. Um, sorry, mm-hmm. in Thief. Um, and you really, it's that's a beautiful movie. It's finally available yeah. on DVD. It wasn't for a yeah, long there's time. Yeah, nice, there's nice Blu-ray. And um, uh, yeah, and you, the thing I love about that is, is even if you don't know anything about the film, you know those are real cons. Yeah. <laughs> they're just, they're frightening. Well, no, and I think uh, uh, the FBI agent, not William Peterson, the other one in, in Manhunter, he had been a real cop that he'd been working yeah. with that he cast. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's funny because William Peterson, I think the movie he'd done before, To Live and Die in L.A., is a movie that people sometimes think is a Michael Mann right. movie. Yeah. It's a William Friedkin oh, no, movie. Yeah, Dennis Farina. Um, Dennis Farina is the cop, yeah. And then, of course, they would just hire William Peterson for CSI, which is, you know, a complete lift of the aesthetics yeah. of yeah. Manhunter yeah. Um, to continue the role. But I, you know, that movie did not do that well when it came out. And it got this huge life. And I would watch it over and over and over yeah. again as the first appearance by Hannibal Lecter. It's a much more evil Hannibal Lecter. It's terrifying. Than it's Brian Cox. Yeah. And part of it, I mean, I, I go back and watch it again and again and again, and I love it. And Sansa Lambs is wonderful, but but I will always love Manhunter. But uh, Brian Cox is so great and so perfect and so terrifying, but he's also, he had that, that thrill of the new. Like yeah. He, and again, there's something about Michael Mann, even if you hadn't seen his film, it, it is not beyond him to have actually cast a real 
cannibal. <laughs> you know, it's like, you're like, who is this guy? I've never seen him before. He's so convincing. Well, I think he wanted Brian Dennehy to play the part, and he was like, oh. I shouldn't do it. There's this new actor on who's playing on Broadway right now. You should go see him. And yeah, it was the first time you'd seen yeah. Brian Cox. Um, it also um, has one of the most disturbing sex scenes on screen ever, um, which is, uh, who plays the the Tooth Fairy, the, the killer? Oh, Tom. Uh, Tom um... Tom Noonan? Tom Noonan. Tom Noonan is, you know, he's 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 a, he's the tooth fairy. He's been killing these families. He's got um a cleft palate. I haven't seen him before either. He's Another got like one. weird yeah. crazy hair. He's tall and <clears throat> super scary and Joan Allen plays um a blind woman who falls in love with him and they're over at his house and he's watching home movies of the families he's going to kill and they start making out as he's watching these movies and he's really disturbing and then they have this sex scene where he's staring up at the constellations and dreaming about murdering somebody and it's just a it's a really like you know again yeah. probably one of the things that screwed up um <laughs> for sure there's as a 12 year old like, i shouldn't have been watching it that scene there's a lot of scenes like it too which is strange he um some of that stuff like that weird thing where he takes her hand and puts it over his mouth yes straight out of the book Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. These are just odd little things that Thomas Harris put in that are really convincing that, you know, knowing him are based on some, you know, hey, Thomas real Harris thing. Really, that, Thomas Harris really lucked out, didn't he? Yeah. How many times are you going to make my book? <laughs> keep, well, also, Dino De Laredes, who, who made great movies in the, in the 1980s and a lot of... Um, a lot of movies that I watched over and over in VHS ended up owning because of Manhunter the sequel rights to Silence of the Lambs. So um, they had to make a deal with him when they went to do Hannibal. Um, but it was called uh, Red Dragon was the book, but they changed the title to Manhunter because Year of the Dragon was coming out, and they felt like you know people would be confused. Um, but there's also you gotta, I mean, you know, <clears throat> give Dino credit for what he deserved, but the fact that he could make flops out of Manhunter and Blue Velvet speaks to <laughs> <laughs> well, what's crazy and this will go to my next one is that you know after dune which he lost his shirt on he still went ahead and made blue velvet um and if you read uh david lynch's um the the book that he just did you know didn't even really totally understand he just sort of liked david lynch and he liked making these movies he didn't understand what he was doing um but um uh but manhunter is uh you know, continues to to influence people, and you know, I I actually just I watched it on the plane the other day as I was coming here, and it's it's great. Yeah, it, I'm sure that Michael would die that I was watching it on my iPad on the plane. But. <laughs> but it's but it's so it's ground zero for so much that came after. It's ridiculous. Yeah, you know, how influential that film was, and then the book it's based on, obviously. Um, I guess I'll segue to a movie that I also recognize is not a very good movie that has had a, a decent amount of effect on people, especially on electronic culture, which was David Lynch's Dune. A beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. The planet is Arrakis, also known as June. Which um, I saw, uh, when did that come out? 83, 84? I was 10 or 11. And uh, you know, I thought I was going to see a science fiction movie, you know, and instead, I got this meditation on, you know, David Lynch's id. Is, yes. um, 
I, I totally recognize it is not a successful adaptation of Dune. I love the book. And yet there are scenes in that movie. There's uh, Kenneth McMillan plays Baron Harkonnen and they've got him in this. This concept is that his his skin is pumped up full of air and that he can float on cue and his face is covered with acne. None of this is in the book. Boils. And he's got the boils and he's got a dermatologist in house who's constantly working on his skin and he'll gets giddy and screams and will go up and elevate into the air. And he has these helpers, these slaves who look like they're out of a Mark Allman music video who, um, have their ears sewn together and shaved heads. And they're these beautiful young boys and they have these valves in their chest and he'll bring them in and take the valves off and bathe in their blood as they die all around them. Um, You're making it sound so much better than it is. <laughs> it's got, it's got great <laughs> moments. It's got a score by Toto. It's got incredibly disappointing effects by Carlos, uh, Gambi um, Baldi. by Baldi. Um, and, um, but again, it's a, it's a movie that I, I won't go too deeply into it, but it's a movie that, um, that had a huge audience on VHS and ended up getting sampled in a lot of that. A lot of the lines got sampled in a lot of, um, techno songs in the early nineties by people who were listening to I it. I think there's know? a, uh, an amalgam somewhere on the internet of the TV version, which was, <laughs> which was an attempt to make it longer and make, make it more, make more sense. Yeah. And the theatrical version uh, that some that somebody has done, or I don't know if it was done by a company or done by a fan, uh, and it's got a lot of different. It's got unfinished effects that were not done and uh, put in the movie, but they're they're put. It, and I think it was an attempt to make it longer for television syndication. Well, they is that true? That's, I think I mean, so. I mean, I've seen the one where they have the. 10 minute matte painting prologue where they try to explain that's that's this the movie. Yes. yes they have 10 minutes of like what seems like and concept they, and they didn't do the eye effects on, on yeah on, on half the people so it's like it's just oh that's not finished don't paint it yeah. look over here um and it's it's a it's a weird hybrid of what i don't think david lynch had anything yeah. to do with it but I mean, Blue Velvet's the real, I recognize that's the real cult movie. I can't, that, I'm, I'm looking here to see if that ever got released officially, and I can't tell, but there is <laughs> there is a Dune and Blue Velvet box set. Well, there you go. <laughs> I would go see that double feature tonight. <laughs> um, you know, they have that, you know, the, the, the creatures in there, they have these like vagina mouths yeah. that are, you know, it's just, it's just. You just have to put yourself in the mind of a 10 or 11 year old where it's so disturbing. And Sting had this moment where he realized that his character was incredibly homoerotic, which, um, you know, he like realized halfway through the the filming. And, you know, Kyle MacLachlan is I love Kyle MacLachlan, but he's, you know, certainly no Luke Skywalker. It's he's such a it's it's like having David Lynch as the hero of a big sci fi. Well, yeah, I think that's what the appeal is. He's David surrogate. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've gone back and watched The Elephant Man recently yeah, actually I saw it about a year ago um it, when you watch that movie it's amazing that that movie was a mainstream movie it is a, a studio picture, a studio picture less, is yeah. a deeply weird yeah. disturbing i think of it as the last hammer film <laughs> did uh yeah. did freddie francis dp yeah. it yeah yep. he also dp'd dune so um no and it's 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 um i actually showed it to um, some younger, I, 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 this woman who used to work for me, Tonya Davis, um, we used to do meetings together and sometimes a movie would come up with a writer and she hadn't seen it. It wouldn't be like an AFI classic, you know, 
movie, but it was a movie that people talked about enough. And she said, let's start doing a movie night, movies that I haven't seen. And we'll invite my friends. And we did like the Warriors and um, Modern Romance. And one night we did The Elephant Man and people were stunned that this was a movie that got nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Um, uh, Let me see what else I got here. Um, This is one that I actually feel a little nervous about bringing up because I got the new issue of Fangora and... I thought, oh, I'll read this article on the brood to help me ah. brush up. And then Joe Dante is part of the oral history of the movie, The Brood, in the new issue. Yeah. Oh, okay. The, I must that, have been interviewed at some point. You were interviewed because you, <laughs> yeah, you remember this, but you helped cut, you helped cut the... Um, yes, it was about uh, trying to, trying to uh, outfox the MPAA. That was that was the what we were doing. The, 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 the MPAA had a fatal flaw, which was that they would tell the distributor what they wanted to cut out of the movie to get whatever rating they wanted. And then you would go back and you would cut that stuff out and you'd show it to them. And uh, then they'd say, fine. But they would never go to see the movie on release. So they would never know that. And this happened. Roger did this so often. I mean, we would just take all the stuff that was cut out and we'd just put all back in the movie and release it. And nobody would ever complain because the movies were, <laughs> they were, they were already beyond anything that most people would expect anyway. And so if they were a little bit gorier or a little bit more offensive than they were before, it didn't really make any difference. And so there were, there were no groundswells of public opinion that this movie is so hard. There are, there are eight hammer blows when there would only be more tasteful to have three. You know, I mean, (laughs) people don't think that way. It's, and and they, they didn't even have a moviola on their property to be able to run a reel of something that you brought back, they would just okay it and never look at it again. So it was just an honor system. I think it was a dishonor system. Yeah. It, was a, it was a disinterest system. I mean, they honestly, once they did their job, they assumed that you would do what you said you'd do and they just would move on to the next movie. I mean, I was part of the appeals process on Boys Don't Cry where we were given an NC-17 and it was, you know, it was, it was, the, it was a, a scary process, you know, and we were independent filmmakers from, New York and we'd been given this NC-17 and honestly, you know, we were given the NC-17, this is well over 20 years ago because it was about a transgender person. It wasn't, you know, it was, we were told it was about the overall intensity yeah. oh, that's of the favorite. movie. <laughs> it's um, too intense. And we got three minutes of intensity. Well, yeah. And, and they, I remember they were, when they were watching the movie, uh, Kim Pierce and I, you know, and we were just sort of like sort of punkish indie filmmaker people from, from New York. And, you know, we were like, what do we do while they watch the movie? And they told us to go shopping on Rodea Drive which was not within our, our budget. But um, we went in to have the appeals process and um, we walked in, there literally was a priest there as with a collar on as part of the appeals process. And you could tell who liked, who was on our side and who wasn't when you walked in by their faces. Um, and we thought we were gonna have this intellectual debate and we prepared for it. And instead it was clear that it was just about what was, they just had South Park come out and it was a really, they were worried about pressure and um you know we cut a few frames off of it and resubmitted it and they said okay um well you know all of that is kind of pointless now because uh it's, it's, you know who cares what a movie's uh, rated at the theater because nobody sees them in the theater they see them on television they see them on video they see them on whatever so i mean the the, the ratings are just sort of an informational joke because nobody there's there's no way they can enforce them uh, and I, I, I think they've they've harmed a lot of really good movies. And I do remember I, I knew people who were on the board uh, in the uh, '70s when I came out here, and they would tell me horror stories about 
about what what had been visited on various movies because the distributor insisted on having a certain rating, and that they would they would literally eviscerate stuff. Yeah. Well, I know people who do the game of let's make our movie extra violent. So oh, yeah, you would back. always try to do that. You know, you make it put, put in uh, eight throat slashings and maybe they'll give us one. But, you know, it's, that's, that wasn't really what they were doing. On, yeah. I, I think that on a movie like Joe, for instance, that, that John Avildsen yeah. movie, that, that, was, that, was a, that was nearly a porno movie by the, when it was yeah. submitted. Because that was actually the origin of the movie was that it was a, 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 a canon at that time was a, a kind of a skin, flint, skin place. And they it, they turn they managed to turn it into something that was more respectable but uh, there're just too many instances where people i think were just sold down the river by the distributors well i certainly don't think the brood or scanners suffered from it because they are you know the the other thing you were looking for in when you were going to video store in the 80s was you know good gore and good special effects and transformations and you looked at that video cover for scanners and you saw the person's head about to explode and you thought, I have to see this. Because when I see it, it will explode. Yes. And it does. <laughs> it explodes. It does. And it's at the first 17 minutes of scanners, which climax with Michael Ironside and some other Canadian actor having a psychic battle with each other is an incredible first 17 minutes that ends with I had thought that the exploding head gag would be at the end of the movie, but they just no. <laughs> front load it. Um, well, then, that, it was in the trailer. Cause I remember, I mean, oh, that's really? what I know right where I was. And I was with my friend, Chris, uh, Chris King. We were at the Goldman theater, which I always talk about. And it was, I don't know what we were watching, but that trailer was one where you went, what the fuck? Yeah. I'm seeing that movie <laughs> somehow knowing that it probably can't possibly live up, but my God. Yeah. That, that, uh, well, I, mean, I love scam. I mean, the brood I prefer to scanners. The brood. It's um, sure you're more of an Oliver Reed man than a Patrick <laughs> yeah. McGowan man. Well, I love that. Like, yes, yes, I'm more of an Oliver Reed man. And I also, I mean, I realize uh, it's also uh, a divorce movie. The yeah. brood. Um, it's about. It's supposedly about Dave, about David Cronenberg's divorce. Oh um, no, he's he's yeah, very very much so. And and um, uh, I've I've talked about that with him and and. Uh, um, I've heard, it came out the same year as uh, Kramer versus Kramer. Mm -hmm. He said it was like Kramer versus Kramer, but more realistic. Yeah, way way more, <laughs> way more. I would argue, but um, uh, yeah, no, that I, I, I it's funny because yeah, as a kid, you like scanners, yeah, and then you know you you grow up, you have some life experience, and you realize that I mean scanners is fun, but my God, yeah, the brood is. Well, they both have. I mean, they're both. I mean, the brood is interesting though because you approach it as a horror film, but then it has this really weird commentary on psychotherapy and yeah. group dynamics that you know you're not totally prepared to get and i think that he made the brew before scanners but both of them were huge on on vhs and the posters were critical to that um and it has you know the howling has that similar thing in it too which is the critique of early 80s um you know they're they're in a sort of commune type situation in the brood um the kids in that are so terrifying the kids um, there's the, the shot of the little kids who don't have teeth or belly buttons walking the little girl down the road. Um, it's like Teletubbies. <laughs> <laughs> it, it has that amazing ending where I forget the the main actor is trying to get Samantha Egger to think that he's still in love with her. And then she gives birth to a baby in a sack that's outside of her body. And then she picks it up and she starts licking all yes. the blood. And then she looks at him and he's appalled because he can't fake it. And she realizes that he's been tricking her. Um, and, you know, uh, Scanner sort of 
front loaded um, the best stuff and the brood saves it till the end. Um, and it is uh, it had a you know, all those Cronenberg movies had a and from the dead zone. They all were cult hits on video. They all had a massive effects they were so disturbing and you couldn't shake them and yeah. the bland world that they're set in and the blandness of the actors is so creepy and disturbing and um you obviously know a lot about uh, yeah mr Grunberg. Yeah, yeah no I'm, I'm i'm agreeing i mean i i you know i love those films i think scanners was the first one i saw in a theater yeah um but uh um, and then sort of went back to see the others because, you know, it was sort of, what, what year was Scanners? Like 1980? 80, I think. Yeah. 80, yeah. So there wasn't that that backlog of video stuff. I think I probably heard of some of it. But um, yeah, no, by the time I got to work with them, I mean, I was I was gigantic. I can tell you exactly where I was, what I was wearing when, when I got the phone call that, uh, uh, oh, we have a guy, we have someone interested in your script. Oh, who is it? Uh, David Cronenberg. And I'm working for a studio. I'm thinking they're going to, you know, and it was like, holy shit, because he had just done uh, Spider. Yes. So it was the last guy in the world you'd think would even be looking to do something like this. And it was just, yeah, I mean, an astonishing experience getting to work with him. And uh, yeah. yeah, I think that the the movie that if you were doing the cult movies book now, that Videodrome would probably be the one that would go in the book because it's much more about the yeah, VHS age. And, but it's not my bag. Never, yeah. you know, it's you're not yours either. No, I wanted to, too. And I thought I when I finally... You know, because there was that thing of, you know, I wasn't allowed to see R-rated movies. And then, you know, suddenly the local video store started renting R-rated movies to me and my parents weren't checking. And so I would rent uh -huh. stacks and right. stacks of R-rated movies, even though <laughs> I still my wasn't. comment about the rating yes. system. Well, yeah. um, and that's where, you know, I don't want to belabor this, but the movie that I'll that I'll put in that uh, is, you know, became a big classic on video. I'm not going to talk about the movie. I want to talk about the experience of watching the movie <laughs> is Blade Runner. Um there's nothing I can say about Blade Runner that hasn't been said, but the same family friends who own the waterbed store, I was spending the night at their house and they said, do you want to go see this new Harrison Ford movie? Well, of course, yeah, of course right. I did. I'd seen the poster. I'd seen the gun on the poster and we all went to go see it. The family with the son who I was friends with, I knew I wasn't supposed to. And 10 minutes in the, you know, um, uh, and they're lovely, you know, wonderful people. They love movies, but they they didn't like the movie. They didn't like it because it wasn't what they expected. And uh, the dad started going, what is this shit? What is, I remember he's going, what is this shit? And meanwhile, I was, it was one of the first times I remember having taste where I was like, I like this. I like that. Like, I didn't, I didn't know what it was, but I liked it. And then finally, 30 minutes in, he was like, do you guys want to leave? Do you guys want to leave? And everyone was like, yes. And I desperately wanted to stay. And instead I went, yeah, yeah. I, I want to leave too, which wasn't true. We laughed. We asked for a refund and we said, can we go see another movie? And then we went in to see the middle of an E.T., which I, by that point had seen, I love E.T., but I'd seen that like 10 times right. and to go from the middle of Blade Runner to E.T. <laughs> was terrible. And then I had to wait three years oh. <laughs> till 1985 when I, I had to wait for VHS to become affordable. I had to wait for uh, it to come out on VHS. I had to wait for the video store to start renting R-rated movies to me and where I could finally finish watching the movie. And I was having the experience that, um, you know, the, the the experience that only some people were having, I guess, not that, you know, which was enjoying this movie that everybody was hating and shitting on. Um, and I don't know if the, the, I don't know if you guys have a movie that was the first time you remember having take remember because when you're a kid, you love everything. I remember it was Space Hunter Forbidden Adventures in the Forbidden Zone where I was in the theater and I was like, what is this feeling I'm having? 
and I started to realize that I didn't like the movie. Oh, which had never, <laughs> you know. But you're nine, you're ten. You don't, you don't know. You like everything. But do you remember the first thing you, re- you didn't uh, like? No, because my my you know, I grew up. Uh, my dad taking me to a lot of movies on weekends. Yeah. That um, um, I mean, I'm extremely grateful for the experience because I saw some amazing films. I mean, yeah. just take me. You know, I always talk about this, but like you know, Robert Altman, he was obsessed with, and I'm yeah. like ten. You know, <laughs> so there were a lot of movies uh, that I really enjoyed, and I was just having a good time hanging out with yeah. my dad, which is nice. But there were a lot of films where I was just sitting there going, "Why am I here?" Yeah. So that that's. That sort of predates consciousness with me, I think. I just saw movies at the Saturday matinee and uh, for the 10 cartoons, and I would stay for the movie if it was, you know, looked like it was going to be exciting or something. And, and But most often it was an MGM picture like Executive Suite, yeah. which is a, 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 a fine movie. But at the time when I was a kid, it was like this, this is a this is a uh, walking through the theater looking for dimes on the floor movie. <laughs> <laughs> said nothing to you about your life at the no, time. No, yeah. no, and and and, and uh, so I, I I just didn't like movies for grownups. Yeah, you know, I, I only like movies that were aimed at kids. And then you know when I got older, obviously I changed my mind. But um, but I always but I it didn't make me not like movies. Yeah. It just made me not like those movies. No, and I loved movie. Movies saved me, as I said. And yet at the same time, part of your thing between ten and sixteen is starting to figure out. Taste. Yeah, what, what do I you like? love? What yeah. makes you excited? What disturbs you? What makes you? Um, uh, I just got a couple more. Um, desperately seeking Susan. She's a woman of mystery. You can dig. You can dig. You can dig. A woman of surprises. What are you doing here? A woman named Susan. Come on. Come on. Orion Pictures presents Desperately Seeking Susan. 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 Oh my God, we all thought you were dead. No. In New Jersey. Madonna is Susan. Literally just watched that for the first time in decades two weeks ago. And? It's, it's, I don't want to say it holds up because that implies it's so much even better than you remember if, if you haven't seen it in a long time. It's such a great film. It's, it's, uh, uh, Roseanne Arquette is, I, I just, I love, there was that period where she was a movie star. Yeah. Like it should have gone on way longer. Um, it's fantastic. I can't stand Madonna. But I loved her in this. I mean, she's she's fantastic. The the Aiden Quinn is it's just it's glorious. Well, when I saw that movie, I wanted Aiden Quinn's life. Aiden yeah. Quinn in the movie yeah. lives above a Chinese restaurant in yes. a loft in Manhattan. He Giant rides Kung a moped. Fu posters on the wall. He works at the Bleecker Street Cinema. <laughs> yeah, um, running movies and that and I wanted. I mean, that was something that I spot. It's it set my sights for like, what do you, you want? Go. I want to there leave Arkansas. <laughs> And I want this. This got you out of Arkansas. Um, and I, um, you know, and, and Madonna, the reason she's great in that movie is because it's Madonna before it was the first, probably the most original Madonna, which is sort of like slightly, you know, punkish, full yeah. of attitude, um, playing herself. And it's a great document of a time and place in New York. It's trash and vaudeville on St. Mark's Place. It's B&H Dairy. It's Love Saves the Day. They shot in Danceteria. The other thing that in the movie, um, there's a nightclub scene and I wanted to be in that nightclub because it was all these new romantics with mohawks and gothy hair dancing. And I thought, well, that's where I should clearly that is where I should be. Um, and it has this, the the great arrival of Madonna to the Port Authority bus station where she goes in and the bathroom is filled with women who seem to all be bathing and um, cleaning themselves and she goes over to the um, hand dryer and flips the hand dryer up and dries off her armpits in it. Um, 
And um, Ann Magnuson is in it, John Turturro, a whole bunch of downtown personalities, Stephen Wright. That's um, right, yeah, Will Patton. Will Patton, uh, written by Leora Bear, written by a woman, directed by Susan Seidelman, who'd done a film called Smithereens. It was that also was a great document movie. of, and they, Madonna wasn't a star when they cast her. And in between them making the movie and the movie coming out, she became yeah. a star, so they advertised it as the, the Madonna, Madonna movie. movie. Um, and I'm glad, I'm glad it still holds up because yeah. oh, um, it's so good. It's so good. It's, it's one of those movies like, you know, it's up there with repo man, um, yeah. just in terms of being, you know, not a moment disappoints. I don't want to, I shouldn't have said that because repo man is one of the greatest movies ever made and desperately <laughs> seeking Susan is just a masterpiece. I had repo but, man on my list, but Alex <laughs> Cox was on here two weeks ago. Uh, so I would just, you know, it goes into the, but desperately seeking Susan, I think also just, you know, it should be seen more. It should be talked yeah. about. Uh, more, especially um, in a place where there was this moment in the 80s where there are several female filmmakers who were doing really interesting stuff and the system sort of imploded on them. There's a corollary movie to that, which is a cult movie called Times Square yeah. that Alan Moyle directed. There are eight million stories in the big city. People say I have a bird's eye view. Perched up here night after night, looking right down into the heart of the beast. Yes, yeah, it's story time. This is Johnny LaGuardia. It's that kind of night and that kind of feeling. Not a good movie, but it's about two. But it's a nice document. Teenage, yeah, it's a nice document of Times Square at the time. It's two teenage runaways. They cut all the lesbian content out who form a punk rock band and live in a squad and throw televisions off of rooftops. And it's funny because that's a cult movie in that like Bikini Kill and a ton of um, sort of punk rock lesbians I know would watch that movie and, you know, I guess I was wanting to be Aiden Quinn and they were saying, I want to be, um, you know, I want to be um, the girls in, in Times Square. Wait, I've got this in, because there's a, there's, there's a, I want to figure out what the movie is in, um, sorry, with the, the, in Desperately Seeking Susan, uh, at the end of the movie, at the very last scene, Roxanne, I'm uh, sorry, um, Roseanne Arquette and Aiden Quinn are making out and they, uh, mess with the Bleecker Street cinema's projector and the mm -hmm. film melts and the movie they're playing is The Time Travelers. That's right. Just for Joe Dante. I looked that up before this. Um, so just two it, more. It must have been an Orion picture. Yeah, it was an Orion picture. A, AIP movie, of course. There you go. Because Orion took the AIP yeah. catalog, I'm assuming. Yeah. No, they, um, they bought it. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I want to talk about The Howling. We've got to warn people. What do you see? The howling. Somewhere in this city. In this human jungle. It begins. What do you see? What's there? What do you see, Karen? What's there? Somewhere in these woods, in this primal, sensuous, secret place, lies an experience too terrifying for words. There are several Joe Dante films that develop big cults on VHS. I want to speak on your behalf. The Burbs is one of them. Um, Explorers is one. I know you have a complicated relationship. It's it's the movie that was dragged up from the furthest depths. <laughs> um, if you watch Stranger Things, 
and you watch Explorers. There's no way that the Doffer brothers did not grow up with the VHS no, I, I of think Explorers. They, I think they've admitted to that. Yeah, because that the opening sequence with all the BMX bikes and everyone, and you know, my favorite right, thing right. Explorers is get is, them on the show, Joe. Ah, I don't me. know them. They owe you. <laughs> they owe you. you don't know them. I, don't know. I love the uh, the scene in that movie with um, uh, River Phoenix's weird scientist family, where they're making the debaklava, and you know. But that wasn't my. That wasn't the movie that I watched over and over again. Is the Howling, yeah. which I noted well at the box office. So I know it's not that it didn't do well, mm-hmm. but um, it was huge on VHS. It was part of the trifecta Wolfen and you know uh, the Landis film. American yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that's what we call it. Um, I love John Landis. I, you know, and I love his movies, but I, and you know, Edgar Wright is, is probably a American werewolf guy. I'm a howling guy. Um, uh, you know, the humor in the howling was, you know, perfect. Cause I didn't understand that it was funny, but I was laughing and it was confusing for me as a, as a kid, because you go in thinking you're getting a werewolf picture, and I love anything where you go in. That's what I realize is different for me than other people when you think you're getting one thing, mm-hmm. and then you get a little bit of something different. Um, but it has one of the greatest werewolf transformations ever, which is the sex-based werewolf oh. transformation. Um, the animated one. Which, you know, has what you want as a 11-year-old boy, which is first some naked breasts, and then some corporal fumblings and then suddenly a werewolf transformation it has um one of my favorite slim pickens moments ever in a movie where he's revealed yeah. at the very end to be a werewolf yeah. um and it also has the the smart the smart um social commentary about communes and the early 80s and the Est. world of est yes um and i don't want to talk on behalf of your movie but i think that that is it is a Feel perfect free. movie to me <laughs> Uh, no, I, I had the exact opposite in terms of the the, the, the tonality because I I went in. I mean, I'm sure I knew, you know, and had seen and enjoyed Piranha certainly, yeah. but but I just you know it was like it looked great from the trailer, and I walked in, and you know the opening is like it's a scary, it's fucking scary, movie. yeah. So to me, the the comedy was what I was thrown. I was like, oh wow, comedy as well. It's also funny, but it's not. It's not. It's not a comedy horror film. Well, it's not broad. Yeah. 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 It's it's. I mean, it has that, say, at the can, end of that scary opening, you know, where uh, D. Wallace Stone is terrorized in this porno theater and made to watch this snuff film and has what we don't we later realize is a werewolf transformation in front of her. There is that joke where the head of the 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 guy who runs the porno theater comes in and knows goes. I know I shouldn't have let her in here, <laughs> um, which is a nice relief. It has the yeah. the newscaster who you think is doing newscasting, but it turns out he's just practicing in front of the bathroom. Miller and it has a window, and it also has Dick Miller like running a yeah. bookstore, and That's, the nuns come yeah. in. He looks at the nuns and goes, "A bunch of deadbeats." Um, <laughs> um, it's a it's a great it's a and and also as a kid I was really disturbed. Uh, can we do spoilers here? Is that yeah? yeah, yeah. I can't, um, By the way, if you're listening to the show and you haven't seen The Howling, fuck you. <laughs> Go watch it. Come back. Yeah, it has the thing at the end because you're so you identify with D. Wallace Stone. You made it through the whole movie with her together, uh, yeah. and then she goes on the air, and in his own version of Network, she transforms into a yeah. werewolf on the air, and you're upset. I was upset yeah. as a kid yeah. because you don't want your 
you don't want the hero of your movie you've been with to turn into a werewolf and they get shot by a silver bullet in front of a live TV audience. Yes, but it was for that was it was for the common good. Yes, but that grim horror then of everyone watching people seeing it on TV and not giving a shit. Well, yeah, it's like it's, it's the um, oh, it's, it's, it. you know it's the they live moment, the end of they live, where you're cutting around to all these people and they're like, oh, they have good special effects yeah. now. And, and yeah, that, the, the funny thing is when they made the sequel. Uh, even though at the end of the first movie, everybody saw the broadcast and everybody saw her turn into a werewolf, there's no mention whatsoever of it at all. Nobody knows about it. It's, it didn't happen. It's See, not, but I like that because I imagine you're in all these stories, meetings, you're trying to figure it out and then find, and how are we going to deal with the ending of the last movie? And then somebody's like, just let's just ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> and it obviously didn't. I think there's been like 5 million direct to VHS. Eight, eight of them, I think. Jesus. I hope you get money from. I get none. I didn't get any money for the first one. I, was, I wasn't in the DGA, so I never, I oh, never really? make a dime. I never make a dime out of that movie. Well, I'm sorry that it got a cold. <laughs> because no, it's, you it's know. very nice. It's, 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 it's. I mean, I think they're showing the Burbs this weekend. At is it this weekend? As or a they kitty matinee. Yeah. <laughs> oh, two, yeah. Two days. New Beverly. New Beverly. Yeah. Um, but I love you know. It, that's the thing about you know you know obviously like Gremlins was a huge movie for me as i said earlier and i think was it 84 gremlins and so i'm t i'm 11 you know perfect age made for me in so many ways and you know and then the, the, the medium age of the people who made the movie is 11 <laughs> <laughs> mentally <laughs> um but um but but i do think you know i, I imagine small soldiers also has a following, a following. Yes. and yeah. as you said, I think it's about the the true test of time. I'm just going to mention one more movie, and I won't go too deeply into it, but it it sort of is the the um it, you know a lot of the stuff that I'd mentioned is 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 more genre. Um, but one of the things that VHS opened up for me, and this was through Siskel and Ebert, was um, um I'm sorry, I was I, I, I was overwhelmed with a desire to say porn. Yes. <laughs> VHS, they did not rent porn to me at the at the uh, uh, at least thank heaven um, <clears throat> at the local at the local store. Um, you know, but they did rent you know Ghoulies and Big Trouble in Little China and Sleepaway Camp and you know The Last Dragon and Chud and all these movies that I can't talk about. But the Reanimator, Gremlins Two, also I think somebody has to talk about that because I think that developed a huge cult on on VHS. Motel Hell, uh, Monkey Shines, Liquid Sky. So all these movies. You know, nobody knew whether they were successful or not. But um, uh, there's a movie that I discovered that was a gateway to me into a different type of filmmaking, and that was My Beautiful Laundrette. The beginning of a business empire. Nothing but a toilet and a youth club. Constant boil on my bum. How's your foot there? It's all good. Work now till you go back to college. I'm fixing you up with a job with your uncle. Like we friends. Bring us in. Um, which is a movie that I love. It's Daniel Day Lewis's, I think it's his second movie after Room with a View. I could be wrong. Um, is Stephen Frears um, directed? He'd done the hit before that in Gumshoe. And it is a cross racial love affair story about a punk rock guy played by daniel day lewis who is a right-wing punk rock guy who's part of the national front who we discover living a squat at the beginning of the movie and the son of a pakistani immigrant family who's opened a laundrette who hires daniel day lewis to work for him and they start an unlikely love affair and it is a 
beautiful, yeah. special, hard to describe movie that Hanafi Qureshi, who did uh, The Buddha of Suburbia, wrote. It was the first working title movie. Um, and um, Hanafi Qureshi had dropped the screenplay in the mailbox of Stephen Frears, like found his address okay. and then got the call of, I've read your, which never happens. I've read it your screenplay. I, <laughs> yeah, don't drop your mail. <laughs> it's, as you know, don't. I will not read your yes. fucking mail. <laughs> um, um, but it is, um, it goes to places you wouldn't expect it to go. It has great lines of dialogue. It's about Thatcher's England. It, um, you know, and, and it's about the immigrant experience. It's, you know, Hanafi Qureshi was writing about Muslims living in the West before, you know, 20 or 30 years before this big epic worldwide conversation that we're having. And, and ironically, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis is the disaffected white guy. He's the Brexit guy. He's this guy who is living on the dole, squatting, is angry, is anti-immigrant. And the Southeast Asians are this hardworking family who believe in Thatcher's England and who are capitalists and want to take part in it all. And um, there's a great line of dialogue by the uncle who says this country's being sodomized by religion. Um, and Siskel and Eva reviewed it. I never would have gone to the video store and rented this movie because it, um, you know, just had a picture of two smiling guys in front of a laundry. Um, but I, I, I rented it. I'm, 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 I might've been 14, 15. And I, I felt something as we talked about, you felt something different and it was taking a place that I'd never been. And it was a type of movie that I hadn't seen. It was a gateway to me to a world of independent films, of foreign films, of art house cinema. It was a Miramax movie before its time. And it was part of the magic of VHS during that time. And it did super well on VHS and had a long life and was heavily influential um, because of that. Um, but it's, it's why I feel weirdly lucky to have been that age in the 1980s. Cause I've been in Arkansas in the seventies. I wouldn't have seen anything. I've seen these things. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. Yeah. And today it's, it's DVD and Blu-ray yeah. for as long as that lasts, which probably is only another, what? 10 years. Yeah. I get, I get, maybe I, I don't want to complain about millennials and you know, it's, it's not, you know, I know that's in vogue, but I sometimes am shocked because when I was, you know, the things I'm not going to is when I was, you know, 15, 14, 15, I was watching movies from the seventies and the sixties. My parents probably watched movies from the thirties and the forties and the fifties. I was, and I was sort of for, you were forced to watch what your parents, mm -hmm. you know, you were trapped with your parents taste in a lot of ways. You couldn't, if your parents were watching singing in the rain on TV, then you had to watch singing in the rain. If, um, and Nina, my partner, her mom loved Nichols and May. Uh, and so she would play that in the car. And so Nina knew all the Nichols and May routines. Um, and you're not, you don't have to force your, right now your kids don't have to be forced to watch. Everyone's on their own screen. It's all separate and no one's forced to watch the collective thing. I wouldn't have been forced to watch Blazing Saddles, which blew my mind. I would have been mm -hmm. watching whatever I thought was cool or hip or contemporary. And I do sometimes. Been mutant Ninja Turtle. Yes. <laughs> God help us. Um, but I do, I do sometimes get amazed that, you know, there's this wealth of movies out there and it's you can get them in a way that you never were able to. And sometimes I'm surprised that people don't just spend all their times watching movies. I wish I could go back and watch all these movies again for the first because time. Because they're what? They're listening to goddamn podcasts <laughs> and using up all of the time that they could be spending watching something decent. But I, I, I don't know. Speaking of, you know, I, I um, one of the it's it's so hard to listen to podcasts when I mean, I'm when I'm not doing this, I'm writing and you can't listen to people talk when you're writing. And so I, I don't listen to a lot of them. Um 
Uh, I try to keep up. Um, I, I can't believe the pure cinema guys are great. And, you know, when, when I can, I, I do. The um, the only one I, I kind of try to listen to uh, vaguely religiously is um, Chapo Trap House, which is this political thing. These millennial socialists who are huge fans of Joe's. They are. Um, and uh, uh, what constantly boggles me is these kids who are 300 years younger than I am are not only more savvy politically and up on every musical group I've never even heard yeah. of, but they will drop movie references that keep up with people like Scott and Larry and yeah. I, and they're just, and they're 30 years younger than us or 20 years younger. How do they do it? I don't know. Somehow the internet has provided this stuff for people who are vaguely interested to go off and find all this stuff. So well, yeah, and certainly you can find your people in a way. In Arkansas, it was hard for me to find well, my yeah, people. I could, yeah. as as you said, you know, it was Siskel and Ebert, and and uh, for me, it was Famous Monsters. And you yeah. found out that there were people like you, and yeah. it was a, a small little group. But now, it's so much easier to connect with people that you know because the internet is, you know, it, it's a, it's a it's a way for people to um, coordinate their interests and beliefs. And yes, you can if you if you want if you look, you can get more stuff. See more things now than you could ever see before. Yeah. The question is, who's going to tell you where it is and what it is, and how are you going to make the time? Yeah. That's the reason I, you know, Senna family died for some good reasons, but you know, when it was in L.A., that yeah, was a family. It, they're, they're just a play, you know, somebody cured. I mean, New York has out the Metrograph, and I see that around the country where people are, you know, going back to screening, and I think the collective experience. I think it's the reason I like listening to this podcast because it feels like you're talking to people after you watched a movie together which is yeah. part of the joy of going to a movie together as you walk out that was the most arguing fun. that was when i was in college yeah. ever we would see movies and we'd stay up all night talking about yeah. them. i don't know how often that happens anymore yeah. well i'm sure that there are a bunch of people younger than us who are gonna <laughs> email you and say Let's hope so. it's still happening you guys are all yeah, old fogies no, it is. And, like, you, you know, know you go to the you know at soon family it's happened but you go to the new beverly and, yeah. and there's still like the kids who are there who are having this experience who are loving it and who are doing that stuff and bless their little heart yes <laughs> thanks a lot thanks right, so much thank guys you so much thank for coming, you man this is a blast i hope you have more i wedding room for all the other producers out there no no no, no. you do you do you represented yeah. your school represented very well, well. <laughs> yes our show was recorded in beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. What you gonna do when they break your back? How will you react when rest
As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.